Alicia Guffey, the founder of the Ask and Tell Project. Welcome to the Ask and Tell Podcast, where you hear firsthand the untold stories of LGBT veterans and service members. For too long, the history of LGBT service has remained in the dark. By sharing our own stories, we hope to help create a more inclusive military culture. The Ask and Tell Project aims to build a community for LGBTQ veterans and service members by sharing real stories and making connections through 21st century media. You can find us at askandtell.com or check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Instagram at Ask and Tell or at Ask and Tell Project. My name is Emily Miller, um, and I'm co-founder of Rumi Spice. I graduated in 2008 from West Point, and I served in the U.S. Army as an engineer officer. Um, so originally, I... I deployed to Iraq very early on um, and took an engineer platoon in southern Iraq doing reconstruction, roads, airfields, things like that. Um, And then a couple years later, I was involved in a program called Cultural Support Teams, where they essentially trained and recruited women from across the Army to serve with special operations in Afghanistan. So I did two deployments with them, going on night raids with Ranger Regiment, um, really working with Afghan women and children. That was the main purpose, since it was it was culturally inappropriate for men to do that. Um, so learned a lot on those deployments, saw a lot. Uh, but yeah, those those three deployments kind of summed up my, my service, I think. I'm from a small town in southern Indiana. Uh, grew up there, never really left, didn't, didn't travel much. Um, you know, had a great childhood, and, and I, I didn't even know about West Point or any of the other military academies until I think I was a sophomore in high school and a friend told me about it. And I don't know, everything about the mission just enticed me. And I I think after September 11th, particularly, that happened while I was in high school. Um, I, I was just hooked. I knew that I wanted to go to West Point the moment I first heard about it. So I found myself at West Point. I started in 2004 as a freshman and I actually realized I was gay about a year in um, at West Point. So I was a sophomore, that was in 2005. Um, yeah, I, I came out to, uh, to my best friend. She was, uh, my roommate as well. You know, we were on spring break and in Europe and, you know, I kind of came out to her because I, I, I didn't know who else to, to tell, you know, she was another cadet. And of course I knew I'd been thinking about it for a while. I knew that it was a huge risk. I knew that the policy, you know, I knew that don't ask, don't tell was, was very much in effect and very much enforced at West Point at that time. I remember seeing other cadets being essentially kicked out of the academy um, for being gay. And so I knew, you know, telling somebody was a big deal, Um, but it ended up being probably one of the best experiences of my life, those few years at West Point, even under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I found, basically, I found a huge community of people that were also gay, um, a, kind of an underground, what we called the family at West Point, um, you know, because Don't Ask, Don't Tell existed. And of course, I, I think the, the fallacy, people think that there were no gay people in the military. Um, there were plenty of us. And we had this phenomenal community at West Point. It was super tight knit. Uh, you know, we, we went out to New York City on the weekends together. We would go on trips together. And, and really, it was that group that I found kind of all of my support. And I always tell people how ironic it is. You know, if I had if I had gone to Indiana University or Purdue, I really wonder if I would have come out during college. I think I, I wouldn't have found that kind of support system um, at, you know, big state schools in places like Indiana where it's still very conservative. Um, 
I think West Point is a really unique place because it brings people from all different backgrounds, from every state across the country. Um, and so it is, it is a melting pot of sorts. Um, I think people tend to think of West Point as a super conservative place, but the fact is, like, it brings cadets from every lifestyle, every state, um, and that's really where I made some of the best friends of my life, and they all happened to be gay. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of anxiety. You know, we were always very cautious about when we would talk about anything related to our personal lives. You know, we were... We, you know, we'd, we'd get on the train, we'd go to New York City, and then it was kind of like, okay, like we can, we can talk about things, we can let loose a little bit. Um, but you know, when we were on campus, it was always very, um, it was, it, yeah, you, you didn't always feel, it always felt like somebody was kind of watching, somebody was over your shoulder. Um, and we had witnessed many people get discharged, get kicked out of the academy for being gay. I mean, they were a couple years older than me, but multiple instances where that happened. So I knew I knew that it was real, and I knew that cadets were willing to turn you in, even if they suspected it, even if they didn't have evidence that you were gay. And that in and of itself could launch an investigation. And, you know, we were obviously on government email, so we were always very cautious about the things that we would type on our computers and the things that we would say, which that's a big burden, you know, to, to have on you psychologically all the time. Because at that time, you know, Facebook was just coming into existence and, you know, social media was kind of in its early phases, obviously. But, you know, we were using things like instant messenger, you know, and that's that's how you talk to people when you're you're in college. And and those were the kind of things that you could never really talk about your life um, fully in that way. And I think we just kind of mentally got used to um, hiding and living in fear. I think. And I don't want to, I think I am cautious here because I don't want to speculate on, on, you know, what happened to people. But the, the things that scared me most and that led to one person being kicked out was, was really based off of, it was based off of speculation. The thing that scared me most was that people assumed that this cadet was gay. Um, and I, I think it really went off rumors and that, that in and of itself kicked off an investigation. And I think... Once you have an investigation going, once everyone's digging into your emails and, and everything you've ever typed, I mean, you know, it's, you're going to find something. Um, I don't think that we can, you, it's impossible to, to live a lie 100% of the time. Um, and so I think that's, that was the thing that really disturbed me. And I know as a cadet, I, I mean, I actually had a largely positive experience coming out and being gay at West Point, but I do remember, you know, senior year, you take a law class. And my professor was a young army officer who was really excited about talking about don't ask, don't tell as a policy in the sense that he was very much in favor of it. He didn't think gay people had any place serving in the military. He certainly didn't fathom that he had gay cadets in his class. And I, you know, I still remember to this day, just, just leaving his class fuming, you know, I was just so angry. Um, because it's not easy to go to West Point, and it's it's you know it's a choice that we made to serve our country, and I felt you know just so betrayed by by my professor, the way he spoke, essentially about me sitting in his class, and he had no idea, um, you know. So little things like that kind of built up, but I'd say by and large it was a pretty positive experience. By my junior and senior year at West Point, I 
I was pretty comfortable. I had a very big group of friends who identified as LGBT and, you know, we were like a family for each other. I found them to be this amazing support system that I could always count on. But when I graduated, uh, you know, we all kind of spread to the winds, right? We all were posted all over the world in a lot of different locations. So my first duty station was out at Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, and of course, my friends were everywhere. They were posted in Georgia. They were posted in New York, you know. Um, you name the place, you know, overseas, Japan, Korea. So it was really tough to keep in contact with them. And, and I actually, when I reported to my unit, uh, within the first week, I found out that I was actually deploying to Iraq. Um, so I think I was one of the earliest people in my class at West Point to deploy. Um, it was a really tough deployment because my unit was already in Iraq. So when I showed up there, I took a platoon and they had already been there for eight months. And as you can imagine, I was I was a woman taking over a pretty much all-male engineer platoon um, in southern Iraq. We were pretty far away from our headquarters. We were kind of operating autonomously from our higher headquarters unit. Um, so it was lonely. I think that was the first time it really hit me how tough Don't Ask, Don't Tell was as a policy. Um, you know, I was trying to make friends in my unit with the other officers, but felt there wasn't that trust there yet. I, I, I couldn't really tell them about my full self, my full identity. And of course I was out to my family, my friends, but at this point I was, I was paranoid. You know, I, I knew that all of my communications were probably being monitored for good reason for, you know, operational security, but I definitely didn't feel comfortable calling home and, and talking to my parents about anything, even though I was out to them. I couldn't call my friends and talk to them about what was going on. Um, just couldn't really share any intimate personal details about my life. And I think that was the first time I felt utterly alone and afraid of telling anybody anything about myself. And, and I think it's really hard to, to get to know people when you can't be your true authentic self. Um, and I think that was, that was what I noticed. That deployment was probably the hardest one of my life um, of the three I did. And when I came home from Iraq, that's actually what prompted me to take action. Um, I remember getting home from Iraq, and I was I was obviously like elated to be home with my friends and family, and and to kind of be back in civilization. Um, but I also realized how awful the policy was that it was forcing me to lie to people, to hide, to deceive others, and that's when I really decided I have to do something. Um, I remember I. I got online and I found out about a new group that had just formed called Nights Out. So it was a group of West Point um, alumni, LGBT alumni, who were really leading the charge against Don't Ask, Don't Tell to get the policy repealed. They knew that anybody who was gay and who was actively serving probably couldn't speak out for ourselves. We couldn't, you know, write articles. We couldn't talk on the television about our experiences. So really nobody knew we existed. I don't think the American public really knew how many LGBT service members were actively deployed or, or on active duty. Um, so I actually emailed them. I just got on their website. I emailed Nights Out and I just said, look, you know, I'm a young second lieutenant. I'm gay. I just got back from my first deployment in Iraq, but I want to help. Um, I want to get this policy repealed. I'll do, I'll do anything it takes to you know, to lend my voice to the cause so people know that we exist. Um, so that was really, that was really when my work with them started and, and I became one of their first, 
I was the first LGBT um, active duty service member on the board of Nights Out. And so, you know, I did, I had to do everything anonymously. So I wrote articles for the New York Times anonymously. Um, I spoke on NPR once uh, and I was, you know, got up at like 5 a.m. on the West Coast to do, to do like an early morning NPR interview and was really nervous about it because I, I was like, look, what if, what if somebody hears my voice? You know, they'll, they'll know it's me. Um, it ended up being fine because nobody listens to NPR in the Army, I guess. <laughs> so I got away with it. But yeah, so I had to do a lot of a lot of work anonymously. But really, the intent was to share stories about LGBT service members, to know, to let the American people know that we were there. You know, I worked with Nights Out for about a year, helping them. Uh, you know, in the in the movement to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But after that year. You know, they kind of realized another organization was forming. Uh, it was called OutServe. And that was really an organization that was started by a guy named Josh Seafried. And his concept was, let's actually get all of our LGBT active duty service members together in this organization. Um, and we can, you know, advocate for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell ourselves. Obviously, we had to do it anonymously um, under pseudonyms. Um, but I think the really interesting thing was being able to watch social media's role in all of this. At about this time, we decided um, I was going to be the, essentially the outreach member of OutServe. And so we ended up creating underground private Facebook pages for every single active duty military base around the world. I don't think we got every single one covered, but we got a lot. Um, and just kind of through you know, the networks of people, you know, one person tells another friend, hey, there's this organization. Um, you know, it wasn't just to, for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was also to build a community. It was to build a support system, you know, for that lonely person who might be in Japan and doesn't know anybody or deployed in Iraq. Um, so we ended up having almost 7,500 LGBT service members on these underground social media networks. Um, and it was just phenomenal, right? Because you know, if we needed somebody at Fort Bragg, North Carolina to, to do like an anonymous piece, we could reach out to the group and then you had multiple volunteers and people willing to share their stories. So it was just a, it was a really powerful experience to know, to know that there are, there are others and, and that, you know, we have each other's backs. Uh, so that experience was, was really powerful for me. Um, and I think I got a lot of I was very passionate about it because I knew how I felt in Iraq. I knew how lonely I was, how afraid I was, um, just the solitude of it all. You know, I needed I needed to talk to somebody else, and that didn't exist. And so I knew, hey, at least now, there there is something out there for for people. Um, then after after my time without serve, I kind of. I had to take a step back. I, I got really excited. I found out about the cultural support team program and that kind of just, I was so fired up about the mission, you know, working directly with Afghan women and children with special operations. I mean, it was essentially a dream job, you know, going on the front lines. And so I had to kind of step away from the Don't Ask, Don't Tell movement. But at that time, you know, this was 2010. I mean, the, the movement had already gained steam, I mean, the repeal, the actual, um, I think the signing ceremony happened in December of 2010. So I actually was able to attend that. I got invited to attend and, and you know, was just a few feet away from President Obama, took a picture of him. It was amazing. Um, just a really emotional experience to, 
to know that this is it. You know, it's been written into law. Um, I can now serve openly and I don't have to hide. I, I think that to me was just mind blowing. I think I didn't fully grasp when he signed the repeal into law. I, I don't think I fully grasped the magnitude of it at the time, but um, in the years following it, yeah, everything changed. I think what got me started in the kind of activist movement was the isolation I felt in Iraq, but what fueled me to keep going was anger at the injustice of it, at the unfairness of it, that I can, you know, serve my country, put my life on the line, deploy multiple times on the front lines, and yet you're not gonna allow me to love who I love openly and be who I am with my my counterparts. I think what really got to me was, you know, the army is based on teamwork. It's based on the people's here left and right. When you deploy, you're never alone. You know, you have a team all around you. But fundamentally, this policy, it, it, it's hard to feel like a part of a team when you're having to hide and lie about who you are. When you're having to lie to the people that you work with on a daily basis. Um, and it was all the little things, you know, it was the unit functions when you would all, you know, all the officers in the unit would go to dinner and they would bring their their spouses or their girlfriends. I had to go alone. I couldn't bring my girlfriend. Um, it was the, you know, the unit balls and, and all those events that you, you want to bring your significant other, but, but you can't. Um, and I think everybody kind of, you know, the, the Monday morning questions, what did you do this weekend? I, I couldn't tell them I went, you know, hiking for the weekend with my girlfriend. I, I just, you know, the, and I think people knew, people knew that something didn't add up, you know, um, and I would, I, I, you know, I remember weekends in Seattle with my girlfriend. We were, you know, I was based out of Fort Lewis. So it was a 40 minute drive to get to Seattle. So I would spend my weekends there. She lived in the city. And I mean, even then, you know, she couldn't understand it, but I was terrified to hold her hand, you know, walking down the street, this, and she couldn't understand it, but to me, even the thought of one of my soldiers or, God forbid, my boss was was happening to just drive down the street and see me holding hands with a woman, that would be it. Game over. Um, and that terrified me. And I, I think even to this day, many years later, you know, gosh, seven, eight years later, I still think twice when I hold my girlfriend's hand on the street. I still, I still kind of do that pause before I do any kind of public display of affection at all, right? Because I think it's been so deeply ingrained in me. I spent nine years in uniform and seven of those years were under the don't ask, don't tell policy that kind of hung over your head. And just under the surface, you were always thinking about it. You were always wondering, is somebody gonna see me? Am I gonna get caught? If I go to this gay bar to dance and have fun with my friends, am I gonna bump into somebody I shouldn't bump into? Um, is somebody going to see me on the street and take a picture? Um, so, you know, all of these fears were kind of always, always on my mind. And I think once I started speaking up, um, yeah, the injustice of it, just the, it just felt so wrong that I'm willing to defend my country and go deploy and fight these wars. And yet I can't, I can't be who I am. Um, yeah. I think a lot of my, my friends and family thought I was crazy. Uh, so actually all of my West Point, most of my West Point 
classmates who knew that I was doing the activist work thought I was nuts because the risk was real. If I was caught and for whatever reason discharged under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I would have owed West Point $300,000 for my education. I could have owed time. Um, I guess I wouldn't have owed time in the military, but I would have owed a lot of money for my education. Um, I could have gotten a dishonorable discharge, which in effect kind of ends all of your opportunities before you even get to start. You know, grad school wouldn't have been a possibility, most likely. Um, job opportunities would be a lot harder. The risks were were many. Um, so my, my family was worried. My friends were worried. At one point, I was, I was so fired up about the policy, I considered, you know, coming out on national television. And, and several other people did that. You know, Cadet Katie Miller did that while she was at West Point. And I think she was on the Rachel Maddow show. And and I really, I really considered it. I remember a conversation I had with my mom where I talked to her about it. And she was actually the person who said, this policy needs to change. And people like you can change it, but you have to do it from the inside. And I think I, you know, I really took that to heart. And I think she was, I think she was 100% right. Um, you know, when I did start coming out to members of my unit, right around, right before the repeal actually happened, um, everybody was fine. And they were just like, that's great. Like, we're really happy for you. Like, thanks for telling us, you know, it, it was, it was a non-event, but to me, it, it was it was so important that they know who I am. And I think also I had built up enough trust and respect in my unit that when I did come out, it wasn't a problem, you know? Um, and I think that's how it typically is, that when you know people and love people and then you find out they're gay, usually it goes well. Um, I, I think it's, prejudice is, is ugly when, when you don't have you don't know anybody or love anybody who fits that stereotype. I feel like a lot of people in my unit who who were super homophobic probably just didn't know anybody who was gay. Um, they just never had exposure to to a gay person. And, and I know growing up in Indiana, I certainly didn't. I didn't know gay people existed really um, until I got to West Point. So I think for me, it was really important to be open and honest and tell my story and just hope to gain people's trust and and just more than anything, I wanted people to feel comfortable to ask me the hard questions. You know, if if they didn't know or they felt uncomfortable, I wanted to have that conversation. So it was really important to me to, you know, be out to people I worked with. I got out of the military and I went to Harvard Business School to get my MBA. And while I was there, I was uh, I became co-president of the LGBT Student Association. And an event that we had started my first year at Harvard was a Harvard-wide LGBT conference. Um, so for me, this this kind of was, I, I wouldn't call it closure, but we invited the West Point LGBT cadet group to come up to the conference. So for me, you know, I, I have this picture where I'm with like 20 LGBT cadets in uniform at this conference. And I mean, it was just phenomenal. It was an experience that I never thought I would see ever. Um, 
So just getting to talk to the cadets and and hear about, you know, they have their own LGBT group at West Point. I mean, it just kind of blew my mind. And to get to hear about how much the culture has changed, um, how accepting everybody is, I think that to me was very reassuring. Um, you know, I've been back to West Point for a couple LGBT events, and it still kind of blows my mind that I'm, I'm going back to West Point to attend a you know, a dinner of LGBT cadets and alumni. Um, so I think that was pretty mind-blowing. I, I follow, I'm, I'm still close to many of the cadets who are now actually serving on active duty. So it's been fascinating to watch their transition from being a cadet to actually serving and and being open and honest with their, their units about, you know, their sexual orientation. Um, I think a lot has changed. I think it was a mil... <laughs> I guess I'll put it this way. I didn't think when the repeal happened, it would be a big issue. It wasn't. It was it was business as usual. Um, I do think we have a lot of work to do um, in terms of our transgender brothers and sisters. I think the military has really come around to accepting gay people, but I'm not sure I'm not sure we've made enough progress when it comes to our transgender service members. Um, one of my very close friends transitioned after leaving the military. I know another soldier now who's in the army who transitioned from uh, female to male, and I think it's been a really I think it's been a really tough pro- process. Uh, I think with obviously the Trump administration has made everything that much more difficult, um, but I, I do think there's still a lot of discrimination and, and misunderstanding when it comes to our trans brothers and sisters for sure. I think it's very similar to the reason I did activist work in the first place, and it is to to share these stories. I mean, the Ask and Tell project is crucial because it's all about sharing our stories. It's all about etching these stories in history and remembering what people went through. Um, I think people just have no idea. They don't know that we served. They don't know that we existed. They, they And especially, you know, the years prior to and immediately after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, I think I think it's important to, to remember and honor the people who had to suffer under the policy and, and to learn from those experiences so that we can shape policy moving forward in a much more constructive way. Um, and I, I'm always surprised at the way we treat our, our trans service members because Fundamentally, it's the same argument they used against LGBT people in the military. By sharing our own stories, we hope to help create a more inclusive military culture. You can find us at askintel.com or check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Instagram at Ask and Tell or at Ask and Tell Project.